Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com The Telegraph, the Telegraph. Podcasts I'm Sophie Ko, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest updates from across the front lines, hear from our reporter on the ground in Ukraine, and find out more about India's geopolitical position. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 4th of July, day 131, and today I'm joined by Dom Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor, and two of our foreign correspondents, Colin Freeman in Ukraine and Joe Wallen in India. I started by asking Dom about the fall of Luhansk over this weekend. Hi, Sophie. Hi, everybody. And uh, happy 4th of July to all our friends and listeners in the US. Yeah, so the big story over the weekend was the fall of Lysychansk City, which is the last remaining big chunk of, of real estate in the Luhansk Oblast. That's the northernmost oblast, northernmost region that makes up the, the Donbass. So the southern one, um, the Donetsk Oblast, is still about half held by Ukraine. So there's still a very long way to go for Russia to claim that they've taken the entire Donbass, which you may remember after being ejected from the north of the country back in, I think, early April. Uh, Putin said, actually, the whole purpose all along had been to to secure and make safe the, uh, the, the, the Russian-speaking people in the Donbass. So, so if the Donbass is it, if that's what the big plan is all along, which I personally doubt, as you'll, as you'll remember, those, those have been kind enough to keep listening to us. Um, but if that's the big plan, there is still a very, very, very long way to go before the Donbass is in Russian hands. Now, that's not to deny that, uh, that this is a, a tactical achievement by, by Russia. And um, you, know, you, you know my views on, on this war. And, um, and we, I, I try to 
uh, I try to give you know, fair and accurate reporting where, all all times, uh, but I try and put it in some context whereby saying that, that this, which I think is a tactical withdrawal, so moving back, ceding ground to uh, better defended positions and without being decisively engaged and without having your men and materiel uh, rubbed out, uh, that that is a that is a sensible option. So I try, I try and explain it, but you know I'm not suggesting that that it's good to go backwards. I mean Churchill said after Dunkirk, wars are not won by glorious retreats. So you know we should mark this for what it is, and it is important to to note where we are up to now. We can't just continue. Not that we do, but you know, as in re- reporters generally can't just put a great gloss on this and say, "Ah, oh, this is all part of Ukraine's plan, and it's all going swimmingly, and Russia's going to lose." We've got to be honest here. Okay, this is this is a loss uh, for Ukraine, a loss of territory for reasons I've just I've just explained. But let's have a, a quick look at, at what it means. Now, that this effort by Russia has basically taken the entire focus of Russian forces in Ukraine at the moment. So, so. So they've not been able to advance in the north around Kharkiv. They've not been able to do much to the south around Kherson. In fact, there's been Ukrainian small counterattacks and some partisan activity down south around Kherson. But Russia has basically stripped out its combat power to push this thing in, in the east. And even then, they've only managed to achieve small incremental gains each day, a kilometre here, a kilometre there, very small. And that and that's not what a military of the size and alleged prowess of Russia should have achieved. So they've not they've not achieved any momentum, but i.e. there is no sense of a Ukrainian collapse. So normally what happens is, you know, a military will reinforce success, should not reinforce failure, which Russia learned to its cost in the north of the country. But you know, to, to reinforce success, you need momentum. You need to keep going. You need to ha- have that feeling that the enemy, the adversary, is falling back in disarray to to areas that are not well prepared they are they're they're all falling back on their lines of supply they're not able to organize themselves there is no suggestion that that is what's happening here so i find it almost inconceivable that the russian military advance will 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 make some big armored breakout to the to the west now that lisichansk has gone um just as they did in the north i think the russian forces now need to go through a period of reconstitution. And just a, a quick aside, so reconstitution is regenerating fighters and equipment that you've you've broken or, or had destroyed and reorganising. So you might find that the formations you've gone in with that were particularly infantry heavy or particularly armour heavy, you might say, well, actually, that didn't really work. We need more um, infantry and armour mix. We need some engineers in there. We need some electronic warfare. We need to sort of shake it up a little bit. So that physical uh, reorganisation of units also, is also part of reconstitution, and it takes a few weeks because you know, there's been <laughs> they've broken a lot of kit. Um, and as we saw in the north, it took about six weeks not only to physically shift around to this eastern Donbass flank, but also to to to, to reconstitute the force to have any kind of effective fighting uh, power. So I think that's what they're going to need to do now. I think Russia is about to culminate, which again is is not. Uh, being pushed on the back foot, not retreating, but it means not being able to conduct any more offensive action for for a little while. So culminating is, is kind of an exhausted slump over the line, but you're not you're not pushed back. I think that's what's going to happen now. I think that's what needs to happen now for Russia, if Russia are forced to continue going west. And I say forced by Vladimir Putin because he doesn't care how many fighters he's losing and how much equipment he's losing as long as he sees that line on his map in the Kremlin slowly moving to the west I think he's going to be happy so he might insist that this advance continues this grinding attritional artillery-led 
advance continues. I don't think that would be the desire or the advice from the senior Russian leadership on the ground. Um, however, Russia might be thinking, well, you know, you've got these heavy weapons from, from the West flowing in now. We need to keep going before they start to have a real effect. And we've seen just in the last week or 10 days how there's a number of Russian uh, ammo dumps, ammunition dumps that have suddenly gone up in smoke well behind the front line. A number of Russian headquarters have also been wiped out. And Russia, don't forget, is a very, very um, top-down organisation. So there's no initiative at, at ground level. The troops are not empowered to make their own decisions and get on with it. Everything has to come from, from a decision by the big man at the top. And so if that big man is no longer there because they've been wiped out in a high Mars strike, then the whole thing grinds to a halt. So I think Russia might be thinking now, well, we've got to get on. We've got to push on because you've got this heavy inflow of weapons. Um, and I think they'll be torn between thinking that they want to push to the West before the heavy weapons get in, but at the same time thinking, well, we're, we're exhausted. We need to fix our, our people and our, our equipment. Uh, with all the time, I, I think, pressure from Moscow, from Putin in particular, to keep going West. Now, for Ukraine, they also need to, to rest. As I said, we shouldn't dress this up as anything other than a tactical defeat nested in a wide, in wider context which i've which i've described but you know i'm not trying to sugarcoat this you know ukraine's going backwards here albeit very slowly heavy weapons are flowing in so ukraine might also wish for a pause because they also need to 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 rest and regenerate their fighters and and equipment and the the longer the time plays out the more heavy weapons are going to flow in for uh, for ukraine um so they might also want to pause have Having said that, this Russian this Russian tactic of of laying an artillery barrage down, lifting that, and then following up with with tanks and and what's left of their armored vehicles, they are they are being picked off um, quite readily by Ukraine. So Ukraine might welcome this exhausted army still still trying to push west. So there's there's pros and cons on either side. I'm, yeah, I, I don't want to be one of those kind of journalists that's always strident in an opinion and says I know I'm right. This this is how it's going to be. I'm basically saying I don't know. At the moment, there are pluses and minuses, pros and cons for each side to wish for either the Russian advance to continue or for a, for an operational pause to draw breath. There are pluses and minuses for both sides here. I'm trying to lay out as I as I see it, and I and I you know then take evidence from the ground and from from what I hear to try and make sense of of what is likely to happen. But I'm not I'm not trying to tell you that that this means X or it means Y because it's it's too early to tell. But I think we are reaching. A, a major decision point now. As I say, Russia has not taken the Donbass, but it has taken Luhansk Oblast. They will, uh, I mean, they can say what they like. Putin owns his media. They can do, do whatever he wants. So they'll, they'll claim a great victory. It will be interesting to see if they pause at this point, um, because that will tell us something about their view of the war. If they don't pause and choose to plough on, as, I, as I've suggested, um, that will also tell us something very, very important as well. So I think what, what's going to happen over the next week to 10 days um, will will show us how the next phase of this horrible little war is going to progress. Thanks so much, Dom. And I should say that um, if any of our listeners want more on the fall of Luhansk and Dom's analysis, he has written a great piece of analysis for the paper today, which is linked in the tweet that is pinned to this space. So feel free to go and tap there to read more um, of Dom's analysis. Now, um, I want to move over to speak to Colin Freeman, our foreign correspondent who is out in Ukraine for us. Um, I can hear some lovely birdsong behind you, Colin. Every time I've spoken to you on this podcast before, I've started by, I guess, checking in and asking you how Ukraine or the situation in Ukraine or the people 
in Ukraine have changed since you were there last. Um, I'm going to ask the same thing to you now. What's it like at the moment? Well, yes, I'm down in Mykolaiv, which is a port city in southern Ukraine. About three months ago, um, or is it four months ago, at the end of February, this was a town put on alert um, by its leaders who said the Russians are coming. We have five hours to prepare. Uh, this was part of the southern, uh, the southern prong of the Russian assault, if you like. Um, Mykolaiv managed to fend off that first Russian attack back in late February and early March. And it was one of the first, the first significant victories for Ukraine in the war. Um, uh, since then, the, the Russians have been driven back uh, east along the coast uh, to the, the, the city of Kherson, um, which is the main city that they, they hold on, uh, on this part of, the east, uh, of, of Ukraine's south coast. Kherson, you, some of your uh, listeners may remember, was a city that uh, was the first to fall to Russian occupation back in uh, around the time when Mykolaiv was repelling uh, the Russians. Kherson uh, w- was busy falling and it's spent the last um, three months or so under Russian occupation. Here in Mykolaiv, life has kind of returned to a, a strange sense of normal, although it's very, uh, very far from what you, you would normally regard as normal, as it were. Um, uh, we get missiles coming in most days, most days that I've been here have been woken up at five in the morning by the sound of either incoming or outgoing missiles. You, you don't see them always landing. Mikolaiv is about 400,000 people, so it's quite a big place. But um, they have been killing people. A few days ago, we covered a, a flat bombing or a, a, a bombing of a block of flats that killed eight people. Um, but on the other hand, last night we were down on the near the seafront watching um, a naval brass band all dressed in white uh, playing um, a concert in the street, marching up and down the street for the locals who were very um, chuffed with us. So life kind of goes on at the same time as, uh, as the war, really. It's, it, it's an unusual combination. And you, you said in your piece where you covered the blast in Mykolaiv that it's amazing to see how kind of community roles that would have existed before the war have kind of changed as neighbourhood watch becomes, I guess, missile watch. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, this is something that a lot of people, I think, have probably done, although it was the first time I'd actually heard of it. Most Ukrainians, like anybody else these days, they have, a, they have an iPhone or a smartphone. They have WhatsApp groups for them and their pals. And what's tend to, tended to happen as They've started to get used to the idea of missiles landing and always wanting to check up on how each other are, um, is setting up little WhatsApp groups, not so much neighbourhood watch, but just little WhatsApp groups of them and their mates, their families, their peers, just saying each morning when, when there's a salvo of missiles, and it tends to be first thing in the morning, bringing each other around or putting messages on their WhatsApp group saying, hi, how are you? Is everybody OK? What have you heard? Someone will post something saying, yeah, there was a bomb near me, but I'm all right. Also heard there was a bomb in this district, that district. And little kind of intelligence groups gather in that way. Uh, normally, it's just a way of checking in that everyone's all right. Rather sadly, on for one of the guys that we met down at the, uh, this, the scene of this tower block bombing, he was stood by the block watching um, the firefighters digging away at the wreckage. He'd been there for a number, more or less overnight, I think. It turned out that one of his pals, had, who, he, who was on his WhatsApp group, was in this block and buried in the rubble. 
he said that the last mess he said they knew he was probably there because the last message they'd had with him was at 6.11 in the morning saying, is everybody okay? Then about 6.20, uh, another friend of his who lived nearby messaged to say there's been a, a missile land very close to this chap. His name was, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name offhand. Um, and then that was the last they heard of him. So one message at 6.11 saying, hi, is everyone okay? Then at 6.20, this missile lands and they then realise it was on top of his block of flats. And it, it, there's video footage from local CCTV cameras showing the missile landing. It's a bloody great thing about five metres long, ploughing through the building. Nobody would have stood a chance of surviving it. And um, uh, I, I think the latest body count was eight, six people dead and at least two missing. Goodness. So as much as life returns to normal, it is a, a very kind of distressing sense of normal um, moving from those apartment blocks to the beaches. Yes, last night. I, I would also detect a, a, a slightly worrying trend. It depends on how closely you follow this, but I covered a lot of these sorts of bombings when I was in Kiev in the first month of the war, when missiles hit large tower blocks. And um, oddly, you often only got one or two people getting killed. The, the casualty figures were often very low or relatively low, given the the scale of the damage you'd see maybe one person killed two person people killed maybe three or four now we're seeing quite frequent bombings of tower of apartment blocks where the the casualty figures go 10 and, and up to 20 which i i i, I can't really explain it but it, it, it's certainly an, an upwards tick um and one hopes it's not the product of any particular deliberate ploy by the russians Thanks, Colin. Dom, I think you had a question for Colin as well. Yes, please. Hi, Colin. Good to hear from you, mate. Um, just, Hello, just on that last point, I think one of the possible explanations might be that Russia is having to repurpose munitions because it's running out of precision-guided munitions. What I mean by that is that that missile strike we saw on the um, uh, Kramachuk shopping mall or the shopping mall in Kramachuk last week, we think was actually a, a repurposed anti-ship missile that was, that was used... Uh, obviously in the in the air to ground role and and therefore it's not it's not doing what it was designed for and hence it's not as accurate as it should be so uh, i think i think there has been deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure by russia but aside from that they are also using weapons that are that they just shouldn't be using anywhere near civilian areas because they're because they're so inaccurate so you might find that some of these apartment blocks that, that are seemingly being hit now are because the wrong, simply the wrong weapons are being used. They're not accurate, and they're just going all over the place, as opposed to where Russia might might want them to go. Having said that, I, I caveat that with I also believe Russia are targeting civilian infrastructure. But but I think a lot of it is the the lack of the very small number of precision guided munitions that Russia has left um, that might partly explain it. But my my question was, and we we hear a lot of. Um, uh, the, the, about small counterattacks in the in the south, U- Ukraine managing to knit together some very small little little operations pushing back. There's a great article in, in the Economist at the moment by my friend and colleague Shashank Joshi, who t- who mentions he spoke to a, a Ukrainian intelligence officer who said that Ukrainian snipers are now are now within range of the outskirts of Kherson, so they're, they're pushing forward there by the sound of it. And there's this, this, we keep hearing of partisan activity, of, of um, uh, rail cars going off the road, trains going off going off the rails and, and bits and pieces. Just wonder if you had any feel for 
for this civilian-led partisan activity or anything that's going on uh, pushing, pushing Russia in the south? Well, this is time for us to be honest with our, uh, our listeners and readers. I have been asking around everywhere about the partisan activity. Everybody we meet, uh, that's the question I've been posing of anybody who might know. And all you get is, shh, no, not something we can talk about. As you can imagine, um, anybody who's operating undercover or un- under the radar in Kherson is, is not likely to speak, speak about it very much. It's a bit like being in the French resistance, I suppose, in occupied France during the war. Uh, frankly, if I, if I was doing that job, I wouldn't even tell my nearest and dearest, I don't think. So we've been struggling so far to really get anybody who can tell us more, uh, anybody who can tell us any kind of inside information on it. But it is certainly happening. There's been cafes that have been bombed. Um, there's been senior Russian officials that have been taken out and other assassination attempts. And uh, it, it's noticeable that it's really, I think, in the last five or six weeks that this has started happening. And there is talk um, of a, a major military push towards Kherson. I've been told it might take place as soon as next month. Um, this is effectively a, a Ukrainian counteroffensive to try and retake the city. Um, now, th- this means the Ukrainians will find themselves in, in a slightly tougher position because they will be attacking a city that the Russians are defending. Uh, and it's always harder to attack than defend. However, in their favour will be the fact that the, the pop- most of the population of Kherson, or certainly a lot of them, are, are very hostile to the Russians. And I would not like to be part of the Russian garrison that is defending Kherson if, if the city came under Ukrainian attack from the outside, under siege effectively, and you then had this hostile population potentially rising up uh, within at the same time. You'd be, you'd be trapped one side and trapped the other. That, I think, is, is the objective. Having said all that, um, some of the people I've spoken to down here seem fairly doubtful that the Ukrainians are in a position to mount a proper offensive against Kherson. Yet, once again, as with the Donbass, it all depends on them getting big long-range missiles and so on. Um, but it, it's, it's more complicated than that because they don't want to missile their own city too much. There's also a risk of the Russians taking the Ukrainian civilian population as hostages. So it, it's, it, it's, it's far from certain what is going to happen. There are others also who say it could equally be possible that the Russians might suddenly decide to roll their tanks across towards Mykolaiv and have another crack first before the Ukrainians can even take the initiative. Thanks, Colin. Um, I know you have to rush off soon to cover a press conference at half past, but before you do, I wanted to ask about um, your interview with um, former Ukrainian leader Yulia Tymoshenko, which was um, in the paper over the weekend. Now, she was um, pretty uncompromising with her um, views. Can you tell us a bit more about what it was like to meet her and speak to her? Yes, this is um, the, the lady also known as the, the face of Ukraine's 2004 Orange Revolution. You may remember her from the papers or from the front cover of, I think it was Elle magazine. Um, she's the um, female politician. She has a, a distinctive, uh, I think it's called a kind of corn braided um, hairstyle. Um, she's done in a sort of Ukrainian folk, uh, I think sort of retro folk hairstyle or something like that. But um, she was, the, the Orange Revolution, for those who don't remember, was um, uh, a, basically a, 
uh, a popular uprising in the December of 2004 where the, the people of Ukraine, or a lot of them, uh, protested against a, uh, what they said was a, a, an election rigged in favour of a pro-Kremlin candidate. Julia Tymoshenko came to power as prime minister off the back of that and what was generally regarded as a thorn in the, in the side of, Russia, of Vladimir Putin ever since. And it, it was the kind of watershed moment, really, at which point Ukraine really began to part company um, with, with Moscow in terms of um, being a, a, you know, within its influence. Um, uh, she, she's, she's, her halo has slipped a little bit over the years. A lot of Ukrainians feel that she didn't particularly do well in, uh, as, in government herself. Um, and she lost to President Volodymyr Zelensky in 2019 by quite a long way. Um, but uh, since, the, since the war started, she's kind of thrown her weight behind Mr. Zelensky, kind of national solidarity, all that sort of thing. No sniping from the sidelines. And she was saying, look, uh, we, uh, we don't think there's any point in trying to get the negotiated peace settlement giving away part of the Donbass or whatever, as President Macron has, uh, and, and certain other Western European leaders have occasionally hinted might, might have to happen. She says the only option now really is just to try and crush Mr. Putin militarily um, to the point where he, he, you know, um, he, he himself falls. Uh, and that, that's, that's quite a, a hard-line position, really. She also said that she felt that a time would come when the likes of Belarus, Kazakhstan, countries that are currently actually in the, um, the, the, the Russian sphere of orbit, and very much so in the case of Belarus, that they sort of saying like they might want to think about joining NATO too. Uh, now, that seems inconceivable at the moment, but if you think that maybe 10 years down the line, both those governments, those authoritarian governments, might have opposition movements taking over at some point uh, who might well want to distance them, themselves from the Kremlin. So she's saying, you know, uh, basically anybody who lives in Russia's backyard might want to think very carefully about um, who they, how, how they choose their friends in the future. Thanks, Colin. Just one more from me. What role, I guess, you say um, that Tymoshenko's kind of slightly fallen out of favour in the Ukrainian public, but what role is she playing as war breaks out? Um... She's not been hugely visible, to be honest. Um, I think Mr. Zelensky has understood, understandably taken most of the limelight. All I can really tell you is that um, she, she's thrown herself, she's thrown her weight behind him. I, I think she's sensible enough to realise it's not a time for politicking and carping from the sidelines or trying to win political points. Um, also, she had to, her own safety to consider, like her, like like. Like Mr. Zelensky, she was quite high on a list, apparently, of people that Mr. Putin um, wanted to arrest or possibly even kill, uh, apparently, um, when the invasion first started. So while she stayed in the country, I think she was under quite heavy armed security. She told me she even uh, um, uh, had a Kalashnikov herself. She did military training uh, years and years ago. Uh, make of that what you will. A lot of Ukrainian politicians have taken up arms. I think some more for show than, than anything else. But um, uh, yeah, she certainly, I, th- I don't think the, the last few months have been easy for her. Thanks, Colin. Um, and I know that you've got to run off um, and cover a press conference. So thank you so, so much for sparing t- time today to talk to us um, for the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you very much. 
Great. So I now want to um, head over to Joe Wallen um, across from Ukraine to um, India, who is our South Asia correspondent. Now, Joe, we'd be really interested to hear. We've spoken a lot on the podcast with different um, Telegraph correspondents across the world about how different countries are reacting um, to the war in Ukraine. Can you give us a bit more detail on um, India's position in the war? Sure. Good afternoon, uh, Sophie. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's India's position has has somewhat divided or perhaps surprised um, some of its strategic allies. Um, it's repeatedly abstained uh, again, abstained from voting against Russia at the United Nations. Um, but while it's called for the war to end, it, it hasn't gone as far as, as blaming Russia for the war. Um, you know, since conflict has broken out, it's it's actually hiked its imports of, of oil from Russia, um, as well as exploring new economic partnerships uh, between the two the two countries. Um, now, you know, this kind of fits both India's kind of short term uh, and long term strategic objectives. It's it's, India's in quite a unique geopolitical position, I think, compared to some of, uh, certainly some of the US and the UK's uh, kind of other allies. Um, and the, the West, you know, desperately needs India more broadly as a bulwark against Chinese kind of aggression uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So, so India has this sort of unique position where it's able to follow its own path to some extent without too much pushback from Washington or from London. You mentioned China there. How far is Modi and India's positions intertwined with China's position? Uh, look, I, th- I think China is the major concern uh, amongst the corridor of powers in, in, in Delhi. Um, and that's no, no secret. It's, it's, uh, you know, we saw in 2020 that, that Chinese soldiers kind of came across the, the border uh, into India and annexed around 60 square kilometres of Indian territory. And there have been repeated incidences and reports since um, of Chinese troops entering Indian territory and, and pushing those boundaries backwards. Um, I think within Indian politics, there is wider, a broad awareness that China has a far more superior military. The countries share a 2,000 mile border. Um, so for India, you know, looking ahead to the future, you know, China is the big concern. Um, you know, China's also established very strong relations with Pakistan uh, to, to India's West. Um, and I think India is extremely concerned that if it, if it pushes against Russia, if it condemns Russia, it could face this triple axis of Pakistan, China and Russia in the future and leave it quite isolated within the Indo-Pacific. And taking into account this isolation, how far does India depend on Russia um, obviously, across the world, con- countries are dependent on Russia for grain, for oil. Is Are we seeing the same effects in India as we are across the rest of the globe? It's, it's a really good question. And I think one that, that certainly um, a lot of Western politicians seem to have sidestepped, I, th- I think, in, in recent months when, when they have criticised India. But India has a, a extremely kind of robust historic relationship uh, with Russia that has dated back to, to the Cold War times uh, and India's non, non-alignment movement. Um, you know, within, you know, Russia is seen as a reliable partner for, for India. Um, I mean, kind of this, this is manifest in several different ways. So firstly, diplomatically, um, you know, Russia has always had India's back in, in the United Nations on, on Kashmir, for example. Um, and that's been, that's been really valuable for, for India in pushing its strategic objectives uh, unilaterally. Um, and then sort of secondary and perhaps a little bit more short term, um, you know, up to 90, you know, India and Russia 
a long-term sort of trade partners. And this really manifests again, possibly quite clearly, in, in India's military. So we've already spoken about how concerned India is about China to the north. And now 90%, or ju- just under 90%, um, of, of India's military, of, of mili- military equipment, sorry, comes from Russia, which is a, a huge amount. Um, you know, there's efforts by the US, by the UK. We've seen the UK and France sign uh, re- new defence agreements with India to, to reduce that dependency. But it's something that's going to take time. Um, you know, Russia's also kind of invited uh, Indian business, kind of from pharmaceuticals to food and beverage, to even kind of IKEA-type furniture shops to fill the gaps of, of Western companies that are, that are leaving Russia follow, following the war. Um, I mean, for India, this is a huge opportunity. I mean, you've got to remember this is a country that was that, that, that is coming out of uh, two years of really being decimated by the COVID pandemic. I mean, we saw up to five million people die here, record levels of unemployment. Um, you know, Russia and India have this historic long-term relationship. Uh, and I think, I, I don't think this, certainly not in the short term anyway, the likelihood that that's going to change. Hi, Joe. Uh, Dom here. I just wonder if I could jump in with a, a couple of questions, if I may. Um, of course. I, I, so India didn't get a huge mention at last week's NATO summit. It did a little bit in the, in the quad and uh, or referencing the quad. And I spoke to a Japanese, a senior, a senior Japanese official. Uh, that interview went out on Friday, I think, uh, who, who was talking about, about India and the, and the quad. Um, but I just wonder if it, it, it did it feature at all. Is NATO at all in the sort of security on the radar in, in Indian circles, and and separately, Britain. Britain's very keen the the new strategy, the the push to the Indo-Pacific, um, and keen to to regenerate. I hear from Foreign Office officials keen to regenerate those and dip, deepen those ties with India, um, because India is the big power in the region against China. So I just wonder if, if is Britain seen as a as a future defence partner or security partner in any way. Um, so yeah, just just wonder what the through what lens is is Indian sort of security architecture viewed at the moment. I don't. It's uh, it's it's a good question. Um, I think as I, I mentioned, it is in this very unique position where it's sort of uh, it's in the good books with uh, sort of with the US and with, and with Quad, so with Australia and Japan, um, also broadly with the EU, and then with countries like the UK or France, um, who are really looking to to push trade and, and expands, you know, or kind of benefit from, from India's kind of post-COVID economy, which is once again booming. Um, it's, in terms of looking at, at the, the view of NATO here, um, I, I think, as I say, I mean, India's, India's short-term, kind of, I, I guess, eyes are very much on, on China. Uh, I mean, the Quad is something that is spoken about kind of increasingly commonly here because that would be seen as the sort of first line of defence if there was further Chinese aggression. Um, I'm not sure many Indians, or certainly particularly Indian politics, would hold NATO uh, too too dear if, if there was sort of further further Chinese aggression. Um, I mean, we've seen kind of kind of exercises with with the Quad step up over the last year or two. India is actually hosting uh, later this year the first high altitude um, military training with all four members present. Uh, which is seen as quite significant because, again, if, if Chinese troops were to come across the border, it would be in a high-altitude area of the Himalayas. So the fact that we're seeing sort of American, Australian, Japanese troops trading there with, with Indians, I think that, that gives you the, the sort of best idea of, of where India's outlook is in, in the short term. Thanks. And just finally, the, the Chinese um, string of pearls plan to go alongside, the, as I understand it, the maritime flank of the Belt and Road initiative. 
I, I, am I right in thinking that that China's trying to invest in a number of of maritime ports around in Pakistan, I think, and I think they've they've, they've managed to secure a favourable real estate deal in Sri Lanka, haven't they? And they've got uh, Djibouti. I mean, could you just update us on that, if if possible, please? And how how India does India feel at all that the Indian Ocean is is becoming a bit a bit more uh, a bit more contested? Absolutely. I think we've seen, uh, I mean, there was a statement several months ago, I think, by uh, I think it was an Indian defence official. He said that they haven't seen so many Chinese vessels in the Indian Ocean since the end of World War II, which is quite telling. Um, I mean, there's certainly, I'd say, I guess, by saying uh, concern or panic, uh, I'd, I'd say, within, within defence about the kind of growth of Chinese power, in, particularly within the Indian Ocean. Um, I mean, China has invested heavily in Nepal, in, in Myanmar. Um, in Sri Lanka, in the Maldives. Uh, I mean, these, these were parts of, parts of Asia that were kind of more traditionally or historically within India's sphere of influence. But there hasn't been much that India's been able to do. I mean, China simply just has a, the, you know, there's, there's more money to spend uh, and more money to invest. So India's kind of been forced to take a bit of a backseat uh, there. But I mean, we are, I mean, we have seen attitudes change, I'd say most significantly in Sri Lanka recently with the broader economic crisis. I mean, the, the Chinese loans, uh, I mean, Colombo owes about $7 billion this year to, to Chinese banks, have, have been a major factor or, or one of a number of factors in the economic crash there. So I think countries across the region are looking at Sri Lanka, um, Nepal as well. I mean, the Maldives owe, owes a, a huge amount of money uh, and perhaps reevaluating that, that relationship with China going forward. I'd say that the country that really is in, in China's pockets in the region is, is very much Pakistan. Um, you know, there's been huge Chinese investment there. We've now got the port of, of Gwadar um, on, on the coast. Um, and China is building uh, sort of huge road and rail networks uh, through Pakistan to, to the coast, uh, which would give it a, a port kind of on, on the Indian Ocean. Um, so, so certainly, I mean, China is, is deepening uh, and widening its influence in the region. Um, but we are starting to see uh, questions being asked about some of the debt diplomacy or some of the lending that, that is involved. Thanks, Joe. Um, one more from me. Now, bringing it back towards um, the situation in Ukraine, obviously we're now over 130 days into the war, but in those 130 days, have you got a sense of exactly on the, on the streets and the people that you're speaking to, whether it, it's still in public consciousness of people talking about the war or is it... Um, like we've heard from our China correspondents, that it's not necessarily at the top of the agenda. Um, so I wouldn't go as far as to say it's it's top of the agenda, but it's certainly. Um, I mean, there's a huge sort of news landscape here, and the war has has been on. I'd say is, is the top or top or one of the top stories since it broke out. I think what really uh, kind of what really hooked a lot of people's consciousness here was that there were more Indian students. I, th- I think maybe Dom could. Could confirm, I suppose I had more Indian students in Ukraine when the war broke out than any other nationality. So for the first sort of week or two, we obviously had the coverage of the, sort of the war itself or the, the invasion. But then, you know, front page in every Indian newspaper was, was rescuing these Indian students. So I think it immediately was in people's consciousness to, to begin with. Um, in terms of, I think, India, uh, it's, it's very interesting when you, when you talk to people, I, I think, um, out and about. I mean, obviously, it's a country of 1.38 billion people. You're going to have diverse views. But I think, as I sort of previously touched on, there is a real historic sort of relationship with Russia. Um, you know, the term big brother is often used when, uh, when, when used to talk about Russia here. 
Um, you know, Russia is this dependable partner. Um, there's interesting, there was a study done by, by Black Box Research about two months ago, um, and they found that only around 60% of Indians blamed Russia for the war, which is quite a lot lower than, than other democracies. And I've, I've certainly found that myself from, from being here in the last couple of months. Um, there's a lot of uh, people pointing fingers perhaps at NATO, that NATO expansion went too far, that they pushed Russia into a corner. Um, that view is, I'd say, more commonly held here than certainly uh, I've travelled recently last couple of months within Sri Lanka or else in the region. Um, there is sort of that post-colonial view as well that, that this is sort of uh, you know, the US or, or Europe again, sort of kind of expanding. Um, so I certainly think there's more sympathy here for Russia than in perhaps any other democracies. Um, I mean, that's that said, um, another interesting fact as well is that fewer than half of Indians have supported sanctions on Russia, which again was lower, a lot lower than other democracies. I mean, that said, I, I think sympathy for Ukraine and Ukrainians is, is, is very high um, amongst the general public here. Um, but there's the view, I think, that you know, Russia is too valuable a partner for, for India to go all out and, and condemn it, whether that's politically or, or publicly. Um, we've certainly also seen a lot of support on social media for Putin and for Russia. Um, there's been several investigations that have found that, that some of these channels are kind of being run by AI and by bots, and it's unclear at the moment who's behind them. Um, certainly some theory that Russia is looking to push support for the war in, in India. Um, but yes, I mean, certainly some sympathy here, I'd say, uh, for the motivation. That's really interesting. Thanks, Joe. And I think anecdotally it's worth saying that actually on even on the Telegraph's um, TikToks that we do on Ukraine and our coverage we've seen over the last couple of months, a, a surge in pro-Russia comments. And we again, we can't confirm whether they are bots or um, legitimate users, but it is interesting to see this kind of resurgence, whether, whether it's coming from um, the depths of a troll factory or whether it's coming from real people. Um, I have one more question from you that's a sl- for you, which is a slight pivot. Um, you do a lot of writing with our brilliant um, global health team and you did a piece a few weeks ago on stockpiling. Um, now, am I right in saying that India is one of the biggest um, stockpilers at the moment as a result of the the, cri- the grain crisis being caused by the war in Ukraine? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a really it's a good question, actually. I think one that, that uh, I think is now increasingly being spoken about uh, globally, um, sort of following the following the war and that the, the you know, kind of Russia and Ukraine dropping out of that market for, for wheat, for sunflower oil and for, for a huge number of other other crops. I mean, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi made a couple of kind of quite triumphant statements that, you know, India would feed the world, that, you know, India would look to kind of fill the gap, particularly um, for many African countries that had previously uh, imported wheat from Ukraine or, or from Russia. Um, I mean, theoretically, on paper, it makes sense. I mean, India is one of the, the, the biggest producers of wheat in the world. Um, but sort of days after making these statements, there was a sort of quite a, quite a major U-turn and Delhi declared that it would be kind of putting a full uh, export ban on wheat other than in sort of major humanitarian situations, which we understand are sort of small exports to neighbours like Afghanistan. Um this kind of led to a lot of panic, I think, particularly as I say, across sub-Saharan Africa, uh, to other South Asian countries. Um, but I mean, that, that decision is, is coming, is, is also uh, a result of the war in Ukraine. We've seen food inflation here rise from about 1% to about 8%. Um, 
And in India, you know, there's a lot more of the, the sort of weekly budget goes on food compared to us in the UK. So food is a, is a, a massive uh, sort of a political pointer. Um, and so as such, you know, if, you know, this is the reason why India stopped pork piled wheat, because it wants to make sure that it has enough food for, for the domestic population or for, for, for its citizens, sorry. Um, you know, also kind of off the back of COVID, stockpiles were at their lowest because of kind of disruptions to supply chains. But I think, you know, it's, it's uh, we've seen kind of the, the G7 and the, e, the EU pointing fingers at India. But, you know, India is not the only country to, to stockpile. I think there's about 20, just over 25 countries now that have introduced some level of export restrictions from Argentina limiting beef to Kazakhstan, also another major producer limiting wheat. Um, and I think India's view is that it's got to look after number one first and then will potentially look to, you know, look to kind of export uh, products in, in the future. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, kind of agricultural economists are warning that many countries could follow India's, could follow suit with India, particularly if food inflation continues to rise globally. Thanks, Joe. And yeah, we, we'll have to hope that the um, blockade around Odessa does, we see some movement on that in the coming weeks to ease this crisis. Otherwise, I can imagine that it will be areas um, of Africa and um, Asia that will struggle um, as a result. Um we at the end of our um, Twitter space and podcast every day, we head to our guests for final thoughts, stuff that our listeners should be on the lookout in the coming weeks. If you had one kind of message or thought that you think our listeners should keep in mind in relation to India's role, um, what would it be? Oh, over the, over the next couple of weeks. Um, well, I mean, I think we're unlikely to see India really overhauling its uh, its approach to to Russia. Um, I mean, it's, it's strategic ambivalence, you know, by, by sort of abstaining, it, it benefits India. Um, I, I think, I think, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say. I, I think more broadly, um, I'd say food, sort of food inflation is really one to keep an eye on uh, over the next, the next couple of months. When I mean, we've seen the sort of major uh, sort of food crisis in, in neighbouring Sri Lanka, and that's been certainly been worsened by the Ukraine war. You know, we've seen fertiliser prices increased by four or five times, which Sri Lanka just simply can't afford to import. You know, broader, more broadly, food prices have surged. And I, I do think other countries, unfortunately, are going to start to follow suit over the next couple of weeks. I do think we are somewhat on the cusp of, you know, kind of a major increase in, in global food insecurity. I mean, that's being felt in India now. You know, when I talk to, you know, drivers on the streets, you know, somebody's running the shop just, just outside my house, the the kind of the, the cost or the amount they're spending on food weekly has gone up and up and up since since the war. And that's happening right across the region, whether you're in Pakistan, whether you're in Bangladesh. So, so I think for me, the next couple of weeks, that's certainly something that I'm going to be keeping an eye on. How are countries, you know, going to control these food prices? You know, is there going to be unrest in some of these countries? And if so, how will kind of increasingly autocratic governments deal with that unrest? Thanks so much, Joe. Um, and to you, Dom, what would your final thoughts be, taking into account what we discussed right at the beginning of this episode about the fall of the Luhansk region? Yes, I think we need to go back to, to Lysychansk and let's watch out for how Putin in particular, but Russia more broadly, frames this, this tactical victory. If they say, if they try and counsel their public and their military for the long fight. So if they say, yeah, well done, well done, guys, uh, but ooh, still a long way to go, uh, that will be very interesting. If they don't really mention the rest of the Donbass, don't mention that, that half of uh, Donetsk 
oblast is still in Ukrainian hands, if they just major on the the victory in Lysychansk and the Luhansk oblast now being in Russian hands, uh, to the detriment of everything else, I think that will indicate how they their frame of mind, that they realise that actually even saying all along the main objective had been the Donbass, that is a tough nut to crack and they are finding it very, very, very hard. And I think we'll get some indications about how they how they trumpet the success over the next few days. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss out. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Jaden Irving. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.